0: Eileen Townsend, and I'm the editor of the Northern Logger and Timber Processor, a trade magazine for the forest products industry that's based out of the Adirondack Mountains in New York State. This month on the Northern Logger podcast, we're digging into export. Over the course of the past decade, the northeastern United States has exported more and more wood products, both logs and lumber, to China. In recent months, trade talks have been particularly volatile between the U.S. and China, and not just for the forest products industry. The potential of new tariffs, in addition to new regulations on fumigated logs at China's ports, have many in the northeast nervous. We spoke with several people who export to China to find out how they're managing the changes and also their views and tips on international export in general. Andy Clark, the owner of Canam Trading Logistics in Franklin, Connecticut, started exporting by accident, he says.
1: Yes, can was was started. I, I It was a brainchild of mine about uh, five years ago. And it kind of started by accident because what was going on at that time is we were having difficulty finding over-the-road trucks that could haul our products back to some of our markets in Canada. So as I was searching for alternative methods, I had a friend that had a rail spur on a piece of property here in Eastern Connecticut that I knew he wasn't using, but I know that he had used it for 25 plus years. So I went over to see him to find out a little bit more about the railroad and and who I wanted to talk to if I wanted to talk about moving logs by rail. So he gave me the information and the long and short of it is, is within about uh, Four months from the time I made the first phone call to the railroad salesman, we were uh, shipping logs by rail. And that was the original intention uh, of, of this yard that we had begun. But what ended up happening is it kind of morphed into a log consolidation yard because at that point, many other loggers were having the same difficulties I was having trying to find backhaul trucks for their Canadian markets. So they started bringing their materials here to share in the shipping method of rail. And at some point in time, I don't remember exactly when it happened. They just started saying, well, why don't you just buy all of our logs? And that way we don't have to go through the efforts of keeping wood separate when we would put it on the rail cars for the markets and uh, so on and so forth. So, one thing led to another and uh, we started buying logs uh, and this all happened after I had been in the logging industry about 17 years at that point. And so I could see both sides of the of the coin as far as being on the logger's perspective, being the person selling the logs and always trying to get the most uh, value out of our products. So, I thought to myself that I thought it would I'd be a good fit for doing this because I've been on both sides of it, so now I was on the other side. so I took it very important uh, as the process of, of looking out for not only my best interest but for the people that supplied me with logs and uh, and now today we're all, we're we're not only doing business domestically but we're also doing business abroad uh, in Asia and uh, India, Pakistan, and and countries in those regions. Yeah, the the rail end, again, exporting to Canada, because that is also exporting. We had been doing that for pretty much the whole time that I had been in the logging business. We did some business domestically here in the United States, but most of the products, I would say up to 70% of the products that we moved were going to Canada, and and primarily the reason for that was a uh, uh, pricing. The Canadians were able to to shop down here for logs. The exchange rate worked in their favor. Um, also in their favor, the biggest part of it was the transportation because there was products coming down from Canada uh, to the United States finished goods and such and the sawmills were able to capitalize on these trucks that were down here anyway so they could reload these trailers and and get their logs back up there for a fraction of the cost of what it would cost to to send the trucks say down here empty just to pick up logs it wouldn't make economical sense so that was something that we've always done but so. when it came down to the exporting overseas, that just kind of happened. Um, I had a local company here in Connecticut uh, approach me. They were already doing some business overseas and they were looking for more logs to be able to to uh, fit with their orders because they couldn't completely fulfill the orders that they had. So they asked me to to, to try to supply some wood to, to help them fill their orders. And it worked well. And after a couple years, I think what ends up happening is a lot of the customers, say, for instance, over in China, they end up seeing the markings on the logs. They see the tags, which would have our company name on them that we use in the logs. And they start trying to figure out where the sources are directly. And the next thing you know, you've got uh, representatives from from different Chinese sawmills, multiple sawmills visiting us multiple times a week, trying to buy logs from us. So over the last couple of years, it it, it became very highly competitive. Um, These sawmills were all competing for the same products. And in turn, the domestic mills were also competing for the products, and then the Canadian mills. So it it had a tendency to drive the cost up. The price of logs went up and up, which was good for the loggers and for the log yard owners like myself, because it was uh, putting us back into the driver's seat, if you will, and and controlling our destiny. Yes, there's there's an extreme learning curve when it comes to, to, to dealing with overseas, because I mean, for instance, every different country has a different way of going about things. I mean, um, I guess the best analogy that I could make is is I feel like today, especially here in the United States, just speaking from experience, I think we're all accustomed to instant gratification. and so when you're doing business domestically, you have some logs for sale. You have a customer, you call them up, you say, this is what I have. They agree to buy it. you ask them for a truck, they send the truck and you load it up. And within a couple of days you have the results and everybody's happy and, and you're paid and, and that's it. We're doing business overseas is, is there's a lot more to it. You have, um the phytosanitary requirements that a particular country might have um, where the the logs might need to be debarked and they might need to be fumigated to meet these phytosanitary requirements. Then you have to be able to deal with the shipping lines, the shipping companies and freight forwarders. Uh, Us personally, the volume that we do deal through freight forwarders that, that, that uh, negotiate directly with the shipping lines for the uh, costs of, of moving the uh, containers you know over the over the road and over the sea to the customer directly um, but now all of a sudden you're not only dealing directly with a customer now you're dealing with a a freight forwarder you're dealing with a USDA representative uh, that comes out and inspects the logs to give to provide the phytosanitary certificate. So now there's all these different layers. And of course, probably the biggest part is the customer. They aren't always willing to to pay you upfront or pay you before the logs have shipped to them. And from the time we load a container till the time our customer may receive it, it could be as long as eight weeks. So, now comes in the building, the relationship, because if you have a customer that, uh, you know, says, okay, we'll, we'll pay one third of the value upfront, another third when they have the original dock slips, which are the shipping, shipping, uh, documents, uh, that show the container has been, you know, loaded on the ship or it's at the terminal getting ready to go. They give you another third and then they give the last third when they receive the the wood. So that it's more of a long-term investment. You you tie up a lot more money for a longer period of time. And you hope that when the customer does receive the product that they that they're happy with it and they're gonna pay you. (laughs) And you know, fortunately for us here at Can Am, we have had nothing but positive results uh, doing this business. And we have been doing business with um, Primarily the same customers for the last three or four years where we have built the trust to the point of they will pay us before we even load the wooden containers. They they know they're going to get the product. They have seen it. And we've never had a claim. So they're comfortable. So, you know, once a month we might send them invoices of, uh, you know, X amount of loads, say we have 20 loads ready, and, and they send us payment. But that isn't always the way it works, so you know it it, it can be very challenging
0: The shift in china 's regulation practices has impacted Clark
1: yes, right now, there is a lot of anxiety uh, in the marketplace. A couple things have transpired over the last two months that have really i would say turned the industry upside down and First and foremost being on, I um, believe it was it was a Friday. It was April 27th. Uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, I received an email from my good customer, the one that we were just speaking about that in China that I, I've never spoken on the phone with, saying that the government had just released news that no more logs were going to be allowed into the country unless they were fumigated or debarked. And up until that point, uh, the government did not require fumigation or debarking for logs that were basically terminating in the southern part of China. So that in itself was a big problem. And we knew that a lot of this was, was concurrent over the trade wars that the United States has has kind of entered into with China and now with Canada, Uh, you know, our president has really, you know, I've been telling everybody he's poking the hornet's nest and it got everybody in the uproar. So for a week following that news, I really was watching closely what was going on. I was talking to other people that were in the same business that I was in to try to see what they were hearing to make sure you know I wasn't just getting fed information from my customer because maybe something happened and and he maybe lost some of his business and was like looking for a way out. I wasn't sure because it was so drastic and so quick and nobody saw it coming that I at first I didn't necessarily believe it to be the truth. And after two or three days of talking with other people that are in the industry and doing the same thing, I come to find out that it was. And so what was the next step? I mean, what do we do? It's it's fumigation of logs in New England is not a really good option because there was really only one facility in New England and actually, they're in Newark, New Jersey, that had the that I'm aware of that had the cap- capacity and ability to do fumigation, but they didn't have anywhere near the capacity to handle the amount of containers that leave New England every month. nor do I think the customers were prepared to pay the price because it was a significant price just to fumigate a container. So it just froze everything. At least on my end, my customers said, "Well, we're not buying anything until we figure out what is going on." So over the next week, um, after listening and watching, I made the decision. Well, I think we better buy a debarker because I think if if we're going to want to continue to do business with with Asia. And other countries that already do require these same phytosanitary requirements, maybe buying a debarker would make sense. And um, it would also could open us up to new markets out there that we currently don't have the capacity to deal with. So our company made the decision to invest in a debarker. So we did that. Um, It is 99% complete at this point. Uh, we're just waiting for a little bit more work to be done so it can become operational. So right now we haven't shipped anything out since that news with exception of some loads that did get fumigated that we had one customer that, that didn't really want to wait to have us set up the debarker. So he paid to have his logs fumigated and, uh, away they went but so to this point we've been holding back the logs that were destined for asia and we've been supplementing uh sending some more of it up to our canadian marketplace uh just because of spoilage this time of year you don't have a long time to sit on the logs so you have to keep the rotation going and uh but at the same time this export problem has created a glut of logs on the domestic marketplace. And I'm including Canada in that domestic marketplace, because all of a sudden you have all of these yards that were exporting logs. And if they didn't have the ability to debark and, or want to do fumigation, they had to move the wood quick. And what happened was, is they moved it domestically and now they have created a uh, a flooded marketplace here, at least in New England. We're, we're, we're up against the wall with a, with a flooded marketplace.
0: Our own Joe Faniff, the executive director of the Northeastern Loggers Association, relayed his experiences from a recent trip to Asia with the American Hardwood Export Council, or AHEC.
2: The trip was uh, two stages, one to a place called Xi'an in uh, China, Uh, where AHEC was hosting their annual convention for China and Southeast Asia. And then there was a show in Shanghai, um, a wood show called Silva Wood, where AHEC was exhibiting, and I attended that show uh, and manned the AHEC booth. Well, it's it's an industry organization uh, made up of some associations uh, for the forest products industry, as well as a number of uh, sawmills throughout the United States, uh, essentially mills that saw hardwood, American hardwood. The organization um, has been tasked with trying to build the market for American hardwood throughout the world. And they've done a great job over the years. Uh, They've initially focused uh, in Europe uh, and in Asia, And um, they now hit pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh, Not so much Africa, but Asia, Europe, uh, South America, Central America. And they have a very active marketing program. uh, And I think have really been instrumental in building the appetite for American hardwood uh, in the world.
0: So what was the mood like at the show
2: and uh, just generally in your travels? Well, um, specifically this time, uh, it's kind of a strange time uh, in China because last year uh, was a record year for uh, exports to China from the United States and American hardwood. And that, when I say a record, it's a record in terms of value. So that would include both hardwood, lumber, as well as logs, um, a record, I think, by several percentage points. And then uh, the first quarter of the year, this year, uh, was setting a new record. So you'd think that the the mood of the uh, exporters, the Americans that, that I met on this trip, as well as the... Um, uh, the Chinese buyers would have been, you know, very positive. But in fact, there was a little bit of a, a demeanor of caution, I guess. And a lot of that is probably due to the the trade uh, issues or the, the sensitivities right now between China and the U.S. Uh, there's a sense that uh, there perhaps are some some regulatory issues uh, Things that are being done by the Chinese to kind of restrict some of the exporting that we're doing, Uh, specifically back in April, uh, the Chinese uh, started um, more uh, uh, enforcing some fumigation rules uh, of logs that were coming into China and uh, made it very difficult for a few months for logs to come into China from the United States. Um, Now, the rules that they were enforcing had always been on the books, from what I've been told, but they just were enforcing them more strongly. And uh, so it wasn't an insurmountable issue for exporters. They just uh, uh, had to better comply with these rules, uh, meaning there were more expenses and that sort of thing. the the issue was shipments that were already en route. Uh, were really impacted. There was uh, I, I'm not sure every shipment that went out during the uh, the late April to mid May time frame uh, has actually gone to its final destination yet because of this. So that kind of made things a little bit uh, less enthusiastic. Uh, and then there's also a sense I believe that there's a lot of wood sitting in China right now. So people are not quite certain that the demand is going to sustain, you know, at least for the next few months. I think long-term, there's still a lot of optimism. So
0: Great. So what were some of the conversations that you heard people having, particularly about uh, issues with trade?
2: Well, um, no one knows the future. So I think there's this tendency in our... Our industry to be both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time, uh, with the sort of outsized impact that weather has on loggers and sawmillers. Uh, everyone seems to understand that there's a lot that impacts our industry that we have absolutely no control over, and I think that uh, as far as the trade wars, if if that phrase can be used in this case, Uh, if they intensify, then we may be impacted. And so there's that sense of, I guess, cautious optimism, hopefulness that we, if trade wars are happening, that we'll just sort of be forgotten. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the, uh, like I mentioned before, the regulatory enforcement that we were seeing makes people think that perhaps we won't be forgotten if there is a trade war.
0: Mark Kendrew, the vice president of sales and marketing at Kennebec, a lumber company in Solon, Maine, enumerated the reason for hardwood exports and the potential reasons the industry is concerned about a slowdown.
3: Uh, Well, it's all over the place. Uh, The market, I think, is good domestically Uh, seems to be that there's you know some opportunities here domestically with the economy uh, pushing about 3.8 percent increase in gdp this year housing market uh, seems to be pretty strong here Uh, overseas it's a mixed bag Um, in the eu um, with brexit and the the currency situation things are a bit slower over there Uh, the the big demand for them is white oak uh, which is something we don't produce here Uh, our mills are just too far north um, and in terms of China, China has um, had a slow uh, April and May, uh, so that's kind of backed up inventories over there. So inventories currently in China are very high uh, in lumber. And then you've got the, um, uh, the um, problem that they're having in terms of the export of logs um, for folks that are exporting logs to China. Uh, with the fumigation um, regulations that have been passed, uh, that the log exports have slowed down exponentially. Um, so that's sort of got them in disarray. They're not really sure uh, what what that's going to mean in terms of the availability of lumber um, in China. Uh, with the inventories currently as high as they are and the slowdown of sales that they've had in lumber in April and May, Um, we think that that's going to translate into somewhat slower markets for at least the next uh, 60 to 90 days, and hopefully things will start to pick up after that. But uh, significantly, uh, uh, there's going to be a slowdown in lumber sales to the uh, Asian markets uh, probably the next 60 to 90 days.
0: Sam Hull of Hull Forest Products in Palmford, Connecticut, spoke about the culture shock he experienced observing the Chinese sawmills
4: meeting a lot of people and trying to develop that trust. Um, there are a lot of customers. There's a lot of people in the business. Um, there's very few that are real stable customers that are a direct end user versus a broker or a trader. Um, we try, I would say we primarily all of our product is sold directly to an end user, a sawmill in China. It, it, it's it's exciting it's uh fun i mean i've traveled a lot anyways um had never been to china before it's definitely eye-opening um very rudimentary in the way that they do process wood um but very large volumes uh small sawmills uh, basic equipment but yet they run it um you know two shifts a day seven days a week uh, non-stop so they they can process a lot of material Uh, just the the culture shock from seeing you know how the wood is processed versus how we traditionally see it done here Um, it's like looking at a sawmill you would have seen here in the US back in the 1920s it's just all manual uh, everything's manual move the logs roll the logs turning the logs by hand um, everything's manual. It's uh, just very different to see that.
0: whole sees exporting is a necessary part of our free market. However, he's always looking for ways to diversify.
4: Well, in 2008, you pretty much couldn't give the <laughs> red oil clumber away. The, it was very slow for everyone. A lot of sawmills went out of business. And it's slowly come back. And I think one... Fear I have, or everyone has, is it's primarily this comeback's been built on the, the Chinese market. They're not the only market, but they are the driver of the market, and, you know, which can be good or it could be bad, depending on which way it goes. Well, obviously, you're trying to diversify into markets other than just China, you know, domestically. Uh, it's, it's a big world. There's lumber going everywhere. It's just. uh Sometimes you're selling lumber to a customer that may be for less than what you could sell it to in China, but you have to be willing to absorb that loss to maintain the diversification.
0: We at The Northern Logger will keep you updated as important issues like tariffs and export regulations develop. Thanks so much for listening to this month's episode. Please let friends know that they can subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or stream online at northernloggerpodcast.com. This has been your editor, Eileen Townsend. Have a great week.